Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and it is time to raise the federal minimum wage. We need to do it now, and we need to raise it to way more than the $15 an hour proposed by both the Democrats in the House and the Senate and presented by President Biden in his stimulus package. Of course, uh, they're saying that will happen in 2024. Now, there are people who say this issue does not belong in a stimulus package. So let me explain why it absolutely does belong in this debate. Neoliberals, the moderates, and even some conservatives say it is very important for the recovery to be equitable. This is not only a matter of racial, gender, and income inequity. An unequal economy is a weak and vulnerable economy. That should be high on your list of lessons from the pandemic. Well, let's put it bluntly. So far, the spending on stimulus and recovery has only made our inequality worse. So why? Every progressive needs to have a clear understanding of what's been going on. The U.S. government has pumped trillions of dollars into this economy. The Federal Reserve has created trillions more with its easy money policies. Other rich countries have done the same thing to the tune of about $10 trillion pumped into the global economy. Well, here is a piece of global data just to set your leftist blood running. Stimulus spending in the rich world totaled $10,000 per person. In the least developed world, uh, parts, countries around the world, the total was $17 a person. $10,000 per person versus $17 per person. This and a lot of other important data is in a new economic report from the UN. You can go check it out there at the UN for more. That's just the beginning of the inequality story. So come back to those trillions of dollars. The good news, as the UN report says, is that all of this money prevented a catastrophic Great Depression collapse. Well, so far. Instead, we have merely the worst crash since the Great Depression. Three times worse than the Great Recession of 2009. And where has all of that stimulus money gone? Did you get your $10,000? I didn't get my $10,000. Well, much of this stimulus money has gone into the banking and financial system, where it is bidding up the prices of stocks, bonds, and even mm, Bitcoin. The front, front page of the Financial Times today reports that emergency stimulus has created a corporate funding frenzy, as they so delicately put it. This is why stock markets are soaring while people are dying. One investment manager put it this way to the Financial Times, quote, markets are priced as though coronavirus doesn't matter anymore. If you are looking for an example of unfair ways the markets distribute the wealth, here is exhibit A, and we must fix this now. Stimulus spending and loose credit can't just be an engine for creating wealth for corporations and their shareholders, which brings us back to raising the minimum wage. You know the human arguments for raising minimum wages. No one should have to work 40 hours a week just to live in poverty. The minimum wage has not increased since 2009. The average wage of American workers right now is $11.80. We are a consumer-based economy. So how do these historically low wages pump this economy in Wall Street? Not to mention if, if wages had kept up with just inflation, our minimum wage would be $34 an hour. 
We haven't mentioned rents, the cost of living, college, all historically high right now. And debts, of course, are as well. Healthcare costs and debts, student loan debt, credit card debt. I believe we should be starting with a $30 an hour minimum wage today, not in four years, but today. And if we can't do it nationwide, we should advocate city by city, starting with businesses with over 75 employees, maybe even attaching commercial rent control, because that's a big problem. But those businesses with over 75 employees are the ones who have resisted paying workers living wages and providing benefits because they're making a lot of money for their shareholders, for their CEOs. So we now have a new argument for raising the wages to reduce the rampant inequality and create a resilient economy. We must recapture some of the Wall Street windfall from all that stimulus. Sure, raising the minimum wage costs employers money. That's the point. They can afford to raise wages and the country cannot afford to leave so many people behind. Big companies that depend on low-wage workers are awash in money right now. Look at Amazon. They didn't even want to provide PPE to their employees, not to mention benefits and living wages. Now, it may be that small businesses will need some help through the transition. So let's give that to them. We can afford it. They need more help as it is to recover already from this economy. So we have to get a lot smarter about how we are getting the economy restarted. We need to channel more of the stimulus into the pockets of working people. Raising the minimum wage a lot is a good place to start. And I vote for a $30 an hour minimum wage today, not in four years, not in 10 years. The fight for 15 started 10 years ago. This is an issue of equity, of course, but it is also an issue of building an economy that works far better than the one that just collapsed out from under us. Raising the minimum wage is just the beginning, by the way, not the end of this movement. Have you heard of LBM Holdings LLC? Uh, I didn't think you did. They are one of the biggest distributors in the country of building supplies. And guess who owns them? The private equity firm Bain Capital. So just in the past few days, because interest rates are low and the financial system is awash and all that stimulus money, LBM went out and sold bonds worth $400 million. And what will they do with that money? Raise wages for their lowest paid workers or hire some workers as housing sales boom? Mm -hmm. No, LBM is going to pay that $400 million they borrowed to fund a payout to Bain Capital. Tell me in what world... That makes sense at a moment when our economy is still on its knees. Now, blaming capitalists for for profiting from disaster is like blaming fish for swimming. It is what they do. And that is what government is for, to rein in the market, make it fair and better for society. That is what this is all about. That is what our movement is about. And if we're not going to do it now, then when will we? We have a wonderful show today. Uh, We're going to be talking to Brendan O'Connor. He is the author of Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. And then later we talk with Jordan Zacharin and Simon Narod about the GameStop situation. I don't know if you guys are tracking that, but speaking of an unregulated uh, market, Reddit seemed to crack the code on how to boost stocks. Uh, It's a fascinating story. Stick around for the second half of the show. But first, make sure to click that like button. If you're not subscribing already, this is the moment to do so. And join us on Patreon uh, for as low as $5 a month. That is a that is now cheaper than an... I, I just got a nice coffee and it was $6.50. So 
it is cheaper than an iced coffee in New York City for sure because the rents are too damn high. That's what you're paying for in New York. It's the rent. So for as low as $5 a month, you can join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. And of course, our book club is underway. We are in the first month. Uh, we are busy, busy, busy reading. We have some new interviews uh, with authors, uh, author Harvey K for his second interview about Thomas Paine, whose birthday is January 29th. And uh, also we have an interview with Arun Chowdhury who talks about the plunket of Tammany Hall that goes up today. You're definitely going to want to listen to it. There's so many lessons I learned from the plunket of Tammany Hall. And then from Arun Chowdhury's just like, crazy knowledge of how Tammany Hall worked, you definitely want to check that out. Uh, join our book club at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will be right back right after this quick break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Brendan O'Connor is the author of Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. What a time to release this book, man. Are you psychic, Brendan? Uh, I don't, I don't know if I'm psychic, but, uh, thank you for having me on in any case. Thank you for writing this book, man. (laughs) Um, I feel like everybody's desperately like trying to figure out what's going on. Not that we didn't have a sense of it before, but, uh, it really, it really came full force in the last few weeks with the, um, the attempted coup. Uh, so what inspired you to write this book about nativism and the, and the far right? Um, so I have been covering the far right in different forms since the end of the Obama administration um, and was kind of looking for a way to bring together a lot of the different threads that I have been following. Um, and it seemed to me that nativism and uh, militant anti-immigrant sentiment was one of the things that is a, an undercurrent of, of all of the different parts of the far right that I was writing about from um, you know, the billionaires and millionaires funding different parts of the Republican Party to the street level, um, street fighting uh, fascist organizations. Um, so yeah, nativism is kind of one thing that stitches it all together, um, but it is a very complicated kind of uh, phenomena that I'm trying to look at. How would you define nativism? Good question. Um, I would define nativism as a particularly militant form of nationalism that is mobilized by uh, xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment um, in the service of a kind of racialized idea of nationhood. Um, It has a relationship as well to managing labor and managing uh, the flow of different workforces, um, but primarily it's a kind of nationalist uh, sentiment and ide- ideology. So when you have these billionaires, which um, I'm really curious to hear who, who are these mysterious billionaires backing this, is it so much that they are nativists, as you just said? I mean, what's wagging the dog? Is it the, mm. is, is it the nativism or is it the economic model, which uh, is built off of oppression and racism and, and uh, you know, white supremacy, if I say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think that the prevailing dynamic that has in recent years been disrupted by uh, uh, nationalist right-wing populisms, not just in the United States, but around the world, is a capitalist order that mobilizes racism, white supremacy, nativism, as a way of managing the working class in different parts of the world. Um, 
nativism in particular is useful for various in for the bosses in various kinds of industries because it gives them a ideological tool to marginalize part of the workforce so that it is hyper exploitable and i'm talking here about migrant labor generally and undocumented labor specifically um, the fact that we have a political regime that allows for millions of workers in this country um, to be completely excluded from any kind of legal protections what very few protections exist for citizen workers to begin with um, benefits capitalists in industries like agriculture, construction, the service industry that rely very heavily then on that hyper exploitable labor. Now the nativist sentiment, I think in recent years has kind of developed its own momentum and has kind of um, escaped, reached a kind of escape velocity <laughs> from the orbit of capital where now there are nativist ideologies that are kind of prioritizing nationhood and the sovereignty of nationhood against a kind of globalized order of capital. And so you have a sort of rivalry and a contradiction that has emerged within the Republican Party and then adjacent to the Republican Party. And Trump is one symptom of that, uh, but I think it's a much deeper kind of crisis that we're looking at. You look at the Trump administration, though. I mean, I think for... <laughs> or even the coup, um, what's, what was really strange to me was how this coalition of folks, some of whom are uh, identify themselves with, with, with the ideologies of Nazis, um, and you have folks who are uh, aggressively racist and misogynist. But if you look at like, just say the Trump White House, uh, Jared Kushner is Jewish. Uh, his, his daughter, Ivanka Trump, is converted to Judaism. Yet then you have Stephen Miller in the White House somehow working. How does this all work together? Um, <laughs> do they just put their, their, their beliefs aside and say, well, for the good of money and power, we're willing to let this one slide? I don't know if it's quite as simple as that. I think for the good of money and power, you have different factions and different tendencies that are willing to kind of share to kind of share power but they're each pursuing their own interests at the same time and so you end up with with tension and with rivalries and i think that what we saw over the course of 4 years of the trump administration was that this kind of nationalist populist nativist part of the coalition that then extended outside of the administration to kind of proto-fascist or even just outright fascist grassroots movement um, was ultimately disciplined by the powers of like big capital um, that it wasn't able people like Stephen Miller as contradictory as their own like personal identities and ideologies might be, weren't able to overcome, on the other hand, <laughs> people like Jared Kushner and the interests that, that he represented. Um, as for the question of their like Jewishness, uh, that's like a complicated one that I don't know if I can totally begin to explain, but I do think that 
I do think that's the testament to where like direct comparisons to the kind of classical period of fascism in Italy in the 20s and 30s and in and Nazism in Germany at that time, where those direct parallels kind of fall short, where in the US, we have a different and very complicated kind of um, racial hierarchy. Uh, we're working in a different kind of settler colonial context rather than a like European imperial context. Um, so, you know, there are parallels, but it's not directly comparable, I think. Um, let's talk a little bit about the the billionaire backers. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of names that we recognize, but uh, when, when we say backing the far right, I'm, I'm assuming that most often this is the Trump administration as well. I know we're just getting out of the Trump administration, but, you know, he's 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 sort of taken the far right to another level. Um, and, I, and I'm asking this because when he was running for president, many of these billionaire, some of the billionaire backers out there on the right did not support him. And I don't think they ever did. Con- you know, where there's the Koch brothers who never mm. uh, ended up joining his crew. So so who are these specific billionaire backers that are invested in this nativism? So one of the one of the individuals that my book focuses on is a woman named Cordelia Scaife May, um, who was to be fair, not a billionaire exactly. She she died with half a billion dollars in her kind of left to her estate. So only only 500 million or so. Um, but Cordelia Scaife May and a man named John Tanton, both of whom are now dead, um, were pretty instrumental in the creation and funding and cultivation of a network of think tanks and nonprofits um, that have operated in DC and really around the country um, since the early 80s, translating kind of vulgar nativism and grassroots nativism into a kind of policy-minded framework. And they existed for a long time at the periphery of the Republican Party and then with the Trump campaign of 2016, were sort of brought closer to power and then many um, people from this network ended up staffing parts of the Trump administration, particularly in the agencies that touched on immigration. Um, So that's an example of someone from this kind of uh, elite sphere putting in the funding and helping build out the resources to sustain these kinds of ideas and movements over time. But Cordelia Scaife May was, she was an heiress, like she was an heir to the Scaife and Mellon families in Pittsburgh. Um, So her financial interests were kind of abstracted from any kind of uh, industrial purpose. She just was an old lady who had a lot of money and some very um, dark ideas about population control um, and and eugenics and this kind of thing. when it comes to you know funding for the far right, I think we need to, other than those kinds of cases, we need to take a kind of broader view. Um, there are examples where you're right, the Koch brothers were always kind of ambivalent about Donald Trump individually. Uh, they even kind of held him in, in, disca- in distaste. But the, network that, the networks that they created are so vast um, that parts of it ultimately did 
end up supporting the Trump agenda and the movements around Trump where the, where inevitably there's a kind of confluence of this interest in maintaining my, minoritarian Republican control uh, that the establishment Republicans are interested in just as well as the kind of far right radicals are. And then the really extreme radicalism of, um, of Trump and the Proud Boys and the militia movements, there is less daylight between these things than um, really kind of either of them want to imply. <laughs> um, each have an interest in, in kind of pretending like they don't have anything to do with the other, but really they do. Well, but, I mean, uh, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go ahead. I was just, just going to say to kind of put a final point on it, like I wouldn't want to imply that there is, you know, some kind of like red string that we can draw to connect, you know, such and such billionaire to such and such uh, street fighting fascist organization. Um, there may be some individual cases where there's sympathies, but the broader argument that I'm making in my book is that this is a, you know, that this is an ideological movement that is developing. Um, and so therefore it's going to be kind of more complicated than that. I mean, you, you highlight immigration in particular and um, the border policies of Donald Trump, but uh, and you note Peter Thiel, who is, um, what is he, probably the most famous libertarian now that exists. I, I don't know what you would call, call him. Um, I mean, to me, seeing sort of the next, you know, Trumpism and his form of nativism, whether it goes away or not, let's just say it does go away, Peter Thiel's not going away. And these, mm -hmm. these policies that are interwoven into um, capitalism, uh, as you know, are not going away anytime soon unless we really <laughs> crush them in some other capacity. Um, so how do they overlap? How does, how does Peter Thiel and, and uh, his company uh, and Trump's border policies, how do they overlap? So, I mean, in a very kind of, that's an example of there being a, a direct um, a direct connection, not just between Peter Thiel, you know, funding Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and kind of almost getting him across the finish line in large part, but that the, comp the companies that Palantir, company that Thiel founded, Palantir, and then other companies that acolytes of his have, have founded, have very lucrative contracts with uh, with DHS, with ICE, with Border Patrol, and so this is an in, and this is just part of a wider industry of border security and border militarization that do have a a vested interest in extremely militant nativist politics uh, because they quite literally profit from it. Um, so there are industries that will want to see future Trump-like figures um, and are more aligned with this kind of politics uh, than, you know, for example, some an industry like agriculture that has a little bit more of an ambivalent, um, an ambivalent position where they benefit from nativist politics, but they don't actually want to exclude all migrant, <laughs> all migrant people altogether because then they would lose their workforce. So it's a little bit more complicated. Okay, so so now that uh, the Biden administration has at least promised to 
change the border policies. I mean, the details are, are still murky, but uh, at least probably the most egregious post-Obama era immigration mm-hmm. policies at the border, if, just to make that clear. Um, where does someone like a Peter Thiel go? Uh, and, the, it, and, and his kind, I should say, like other right. folks who are in that space. I mean, I think that, I think it's hard to say in this moment, Peter Thiel obviously made, Peter Thiel has made a heavy investment in specifically Josh Hawley. Um, he's given him a ton of campaign funding over the Shocker. years. Shocker. Yeah, shocking. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but, you know, Hawley's future in the Republican Party is a little bit unclear. I think that we're about to see a period of time where fractures within the coalition that comprises the Republican Party um, are going to widen. And there's an open question, I think, about whether parts of the capitalist class that have funded and influenced and controlled the Republican Party for decades now are going to abandon it for a Biden-Harris-led Democratic Party that might be more favorable to the, you know, uh, to a kind of global capitalist um, economic and political system. What complicates that is, as we said before, Republicans have been very effective at entrenching like minoritarian rule. And so they're not going to disappear <laughs> overnight. Um, so all of that is to say, where does somebody like Peter Thiel go? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think. I said to New Zealand. <laughs> to yeah, I mean, yeah, pro- yeah, to New Zealand, bunker. it sort of depends on, yeah, it depends on, on how quickly the climate crisis accelerates. Yeah. Um, but I think that we are, I think the Republican Party is going to be, um, you know, that there's going to be turmoil in the Republican Party and whether or not <laughs> Democrats have the, um, have the audacity to, to take advantage of that turmoil remains to be seen. I'm not optimistic, uh, but, you know, I, I think, I, I, I think it could go in, I think it could go in some very dark directions. And I think Peter Thiel is someone that future Josh Hawley's will be looking for, looking to for financial support, guidance, mentorship. Um, and I think Peter Thiel will be happy to provide that. Which is why the Biden administration and all the Democrats need to crack down now while they have the power for the brief two years that they might have the power for. Uh, and that we, of course, need to pressure them to do this because uh, if you want this nativism to go away, I'm glad that you had the money sources. My, my perspective is kill their money sources for now. So, um, so they don't continue. Brendan O'Connor, super fascinating conversation. Uh, would love to have you back on. I feel like we're going to be talking about this a little bit more. <laughs> I, <laughs> more I, unfortunately, I think you're right. <laughs> well, it's good for you. Maybe you'll sell lots of books. <laughs> uh, Brendan O'Connor is the author of Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. It is pr- uh, published by Haymarket B- Books, friend of our show, Haymarket Books. Uh, go check out his book, buy it in all the good book places like, I believe, Red Anna, Emma's 
at haymarketbooks.org. You've got it right on screen and give them a good book review. All right. Thank you so much, Brendan. <laughs> thank you. Uh, before we go to our break, I just want to say thank you to everybody in the chat. Um, there's almost too many to, to say thank you to. Thank you for the birthday wishes. Um, it's been a very special day. I... <laughs> I have, I have a lot to do today. Um, I'm going to have to jump out of the show early, but I will come back tomorrow uh, with, with super chat shout outs, but thank you to everybody who has been giving me love so far. Um, I'm in my late thirties. I don't know how I feel about this yet. Late thirties. I feel like, no, you can't, yeah, they can't call me young anymore. Um, but it's been a nice day. So thank you for, for joining us for this birthday show. And thanks to the Majority Report crew for giving me a shout out earlier. And everybody online who sent notes and, and our entire team. All right, we'll be right back after the break with Jordan Zacharin and Simon Rowe. Welcome back to the show, Simon Road. He is a former organizer for Bernie 2020. And of course, he is a member of our team here at TNS. And Jordan Zacharin, he runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. They're our regulars. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday. Uh, in the last hours, the entire like market, like the business model of the market has just shifted. Uh, we're not a market-driven show, but this is crazy. Of course, I'm talking about the GameStop uh, story. As of right now, what is it? $320 a stock. So um, <laughs> is this like the new way to just break apart capitalism? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is, you know, all of these, you know, Wall Street types who have been so used to manipulating the market are now seeing that other people can do it too. And they're not having it. And I think it's kind of hilarious. And uh, so we're, we're seeing them scramble to like shut down the market and stop this stuff from going on and trying to institute new regulations and, 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 and trying to figure out how to like PR these new regulations as like, these are good for the, for the public good or something like, it's just ridiculous um, circus that we're seeing today. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, game it's so interesting to me, uh, real quick, just, just to give up some of the um, folks a background here is, uh, you know, COVID hit GameStop really, stopped really hard. So many different real retailers across the country were hurt um, and they were planning on closing 450 <laughs> stores and now they're the hottest stock on the market. So <laughs> Jordan, um, is, is Reddit like, is this the, the, the secret to saving every company in America right now that's been hit hard by, by COVID? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know how much uh, GameStop, the company itself, will profit, but I think it's it's pretty amazing to see this, like, the company is, you know, all, mostly controlled by these hedge funds, right, uh, that have all this control of it. They decided they were going to just vulture it up. They were going to close stores. They are going to take real estate. They were going to fire all these workers. And, you know, they've been gaming the market for so many years, right? They've been doing this for so long. And now these people on Reddit decided that, yeah, let's see, let's – you know, let's screw them and make some money ourselves. And what's remarkable is not, you know, they're not saying, oh, you don't fair play. We'll figure out how, how to deal with it. They're just whining in the same way that we'll see Republicans whining. And we see because they saw, you know, uh, people of color and Democrats organizing and winning votes. Now we have to change the rules. If it, if it doesn't benefit the rich white guys, we have to change the rules now. Gonna have to, now they're going to be in favor of changing the regulations. Um, Urgency. Think, it's amazing <laughs> right. to see how quickly they act when we're when they're always like, hold on, hold on. We, we you know, we got to we, we, we got, they should have to break the filibuster, I think, for uh, for <laughs> this one. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing to see, like, if your whole system is built on this thing that's so easy to take down with a few determined people on Reddit, 
you know, Reddit this summer was trading radishes and Animal Crossing. And so if those people can take down the entire stock market and change the way capitalism works, maybe the system isn't built the way it should be. You know, it's pretty easy to knock down a house of cards. And I think that's what we're seeing more than anything else. So now we need to find really smart people out there who can find these other loopholes. And this is we just, you know, little by little, this is how we take down Wall Street. My, my personal issue with Wall Street, which has just made every single industry in this country dependent on it, is the cycle. Everything is very driven by this, this quarterly cycle, which has really come down to like minute by minute cycle as we're seeing today. Um, we're all beholden to this business model, which is, I mean, politicians are beholden to this business model. Media is beholden to this business model. Uh, advertisers, I mean, it's just affected every single inch of, of our society and it's complete fluff. It's like invented. It's not based on actual. Right. I mean, what? Exactly. Like you cannot pretend that like the stock price is like a reflection of how a business is doing when GameStop is like wanting to close down hundreds of stores and at the same time, like you said, like their stock price is soaring. So we're seeing how this whole thing is just fantasy. It's just stuff that we made up. Um, it's not like some immutable like thing that can never go away. Like this yeah, I mean, that's, that's the truth that not just the stock market, but really all of our economic system. And it, you have this idea that it's the best and brightest. These people, you know, went to these great schools and they deserve to, you know, they worked all these hours and they deserve to profit off it and not be taxed for it. And it's now they're just, you know, taking a bath because a bunch of, I don't know if it's kids, but a bunch of people have access to E-Trade and Robinhood and take them down, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And you see Andrew Cuomo in New York saying, we don't want our rich to leave. We can't raise the taxes because they'll leave. And it's like, all right, well, then we'll just take their money via uh, GameStop stocks and then they can leave and uh, people will be taxed. So that's another way to do it, I guess. If uh, we're going to coddle the rich, maybe we just take away their money another way. Here's I my wanna, theory. Yeah, oh, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go ahead, Simon. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I know that, that um, Reddit is now like organizing to do this at like other retailers as well. And I think that they're already doing it for like Bed Bath & Beyond and a few others. Uh, and I just want to like caution anyone who's watching this show to be like very, very careful about getting on this stuff a little bit late now that it's getting so much buzz. All these stock prices are eventually going to fall back down to something normal. Uh, and you could stand to lose a lot of money if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily participate. Like, you know, root, you know, uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's like there's people's pensions are in these hedge funds. There's people's money that are in these stocks. So it's not like only rich people are affected, but I think it's more an example. I don't think we want to necessarily see it happen to every single stock. But I think it's an, an example of why the system is so absurd and why it needs to badly be reformed and not just to make sure that teenagers uh, on E-Trade can't mess it up. Uh, speaking of teenagers, uh, there's this theory that minimum wage workers are just all teenagers, just all, uh, you know, working at McDonald's and it's their, it's their side job while they're at school. And, and like the minimum wage really doesn't mean anything. And if we increase the minimum wage, you know, at, at wherever, uh, these, these, uh, these labors, these supposed mythical labors that they think are just teenagers, um, that it'll really hurt businesses, uh, <laughs> we have this clip of, of one of our favorite Fox hosts explained, explaining to us just how the minimum wage increase should work. And this is, of course, in response to uh, Democrats in the House and the Senate proposing a $15 minimum wage by 2025. 
which I addressed in the opening. Here's the other argument that maybe things have changed a bit, and that is during the 2020 election down in Florida, Florida passed it by 60 percent. They have gone ahead and okayed the minimum wage at 15 bucks an hour. And a majority of the people who voted for it also voted for Donald Trump. Brian. That is great. That's states making decisions that work for them. And if they don't like that decision, they get voted out. People into the ballot box and do it. But I don't think that necessarily flies for Indiana. I don't think you can say what's going to happen for Oklahoma. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Think about and the, the other thing is at 725 an hour, that's an right. entry level wage. What you do is you work your way up on that wage. And then if you in the meantime, you do what almost everybody else has done in the past. You get another job to supplement as you work your way through. Even if it means going to school at night, you find right. a way you don't ruin a business in order to uh, in order to I guess, get votes from people. It's been a long time since there's been an increase. They do have to increase it. My my concern is, though, four years is not a long time. To go to double it in four years, if you own a restaurant... Wages were going up, Ainsley, uh, with the economy. As the economy grows, the wages were going up naturally, organically. You didn't need Bernie Sanders telling you what you should make, which is a scary proclamation. When the socialist is leading the charge... Listen, I've got uh, two members of my immediate family who are adults and who are heads of households are minimum wage employees and they could use a raise during the pandemic. So ultimately, though, it comes to it's a math problem. You give them you give the employee more money then the business has to hire fewer people. Mm -hmm. You want to hire more people. It's it's just a math thing. Oh, my God. First off, I I don't so close. Yes, so close, so close. It it needs to increase, but oh my God, doubling it in four years, doubling it from $7 an hour. Oh man, I have so many thoughts on this. As you guys know, I'm a big proponent of the $30 minimum wage. I think it's still below what it would would be reflected in if if we had kept up with inflation and a lot of other factors. Um, But I mean, in cities alone, like there's no way you can support yourself off of $7 an hour or $15 an hour. Um, It's comical. It's insulting. And and I think, you know, Ducey starting off with Trump voters supported it, too, should maybe trigger them. Maybe maybe they realize that their audience doesn't agree with what they're saying. Well, what was remarkable to me was this, uh, what, what Kilmeade said. He was saying that, I can't, why do I know his name? That's really depressing also. But what was remarkable is that Kilmeade, he said, you know, don't pen- penalize a business, make someone work two jobs and go to school at night. And what's amazing to me is that why do we have to prioritize some business owner versus all the employees and say, you have to crawl and, you know, go through the mud in every single step of the way, struggle, just so some guy who owns, it's not even a small business. Most you know, businesses that pay the minimum wage, are, you know, small businesses are struggling. 300,000 of them have closed. It's not those people who are fighting the minimum wage increase. It's the big businesses that like Amazon that does not want to let their employees unionize in Alabama. And so, you know, beyond that, it's, it is like uh, Ducey said, why do I know their names? You know, only half of minimum wage, minimum wage workers are 25 and younger. The other half are 25 and older, full-grown adults, people that probably have to support families. Uh, and so the fact he's so wrong in so many ways, just the philosophical and just numerical, mathematically, it's, it's absurd to me. You know, what's interesting about this, are it, the fight for 15 has been going on for 10 years. And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate Bernie Sanders for taking the lead on this, but I felt like he could have gone a little bit bolder um, and said, you know, we we've been fighting this for 10 years and at this rate it'll be 15 years once this gets passed um and as you said jordan i mean 
20, the 20, half of them are under 25 years old, you know, plenty of 25 year olds who are head of households, by the way, those under 25. Uh, but, you know, the majority of them are women and women of color. And if we remember the fight for 15, it was led by uh, women of color. Simon, I mean, w- how do you think that we counter this message when our biggest advocate for $15 minimum wage is Bernie Sanders? And we're like, what? That's not enough. Let's go. I know. I know. And I mean, it's it's tough to see the way that the I mean, I think at the end of the day, we are, um, we're sort of favored in this whole argument because like we look at the way that these Republicans on Fox News are trying to defend the uh, minimum wage at, at being what it is right now, that those arguments, they're just throwing everything at it. They're the, the socialism, fear-mongering, the states' rights kind of thing. Like, they're just throwing all these arguments that they use for everything else, and it's not going to land. Like, you're seeing, like, they were talking about, you know, Trump supporters who, su- who support the $15 minimum wage increase. And, of course, they do, because this is a class issue. And, you know, there are working-class people who voted for Trump and working-class people who didn't, and everybody wants more money, and they know that they're being screwed over. So I think yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that this is going to sort of, um, it's just a matter of, of when. And I think it's also a matter of, like you said, you know, a lot of Trump voters are supporting it. We're seeing that in states across the country. It's not just Florida. There's so many states that voted to raise the minimum wage, not all to 15 necessarily, but in some states it was 12, 13, and then index it to inflation. These are popular issues. And in Florida, the state Democrats did not get behind the fight for 15. They did not get exactly. behind the ballot initiative. They got wiped out. <laughs> you know, we saw, I actually just saw in North Dakota this one Republican legislator and take the t- take it to marijuana for a second because that's another, you know, very popular bipartisan issue. He's like, you know, I'm against weed, but it's going to be legalized. South Dakota just voted to legalize it. He introduced his own bill to legalize uh, Bill uh, 1420, of course, uh, as it's called, House, House <laughs> Bill, and to legalize it in like as small a way as possible. So Republicans are now starting to get it and Fox News is starting to get it. I would love to see Democrats jump on this even more and not have it hit $15 in 2025, which is, by the way, after the 2024 election. So don't take a controversial vote and have it go into effect and help people only after the election. So- exactly. Strateg- it's just not strategically effective. Um, go ahead, Simon. They want, to use the, they want to use it for their 2024 campaign, you know? It's, it's just, it's really pathetic that they'd rather play political games. And this goes for Republicans and Democrats. You know, they'd rather play political games than actually represent us and like take care of of working class Americans. Uh, I want to point out something that Jordan was just talking about, how other states and other cities have implemented higher minimum wages. And when you look at the data, and a bunch of studies have been done on the states that, and cities that have implemented a $15 minimum wage, that it led to greater pay for like greater take-home pay for workers, that it was um, that their quality of life improved, and it led to like minimal or no layoffs at all. So like all of these bunk arguments can can totally be debunked through like actual um, case studies. And I think it's not it's not just minimum wage workers either. When you raise the base salary, you have to raise other people's salaries, you know, other people's pay. And so it's not just for the teenagers, so to speak. It's for people who are making seven twenty-five an hour, people who are making ten dollars an hour, people making twenty-five and you know twenty. $30 $30 an hour because they have to be paid more. And I think like, that is, you know, that sort of stuff. It's, uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And I don't know if that's often true, but it's true here. Uh, I think that's the point. They, they don't yes. want to pay everybody for their work. Uh, and that's why they don't like working with unions who often pay their workers 50, 60, you know, increase, increase goes upwards afterwards. 
uh, an hour and with benefits. Of course, that is the main point. Um, I'm going to start calling this section of the Republican Party just the denialist party, like, yes. like not the Patriot Party, but the denial, like denying the reality of of this economy, denying the fact that, uh, you know, COVID is real, denying climate change. I mean, that's all they're doing. They don't have any solutions moving forward. It is it's no longer about guns and gays and whatever they used to put out there. It is about denying reality. Uh, we have a clip of one of the, the chief denialists, Sean Hannity. Just, you know, I don't know. Do that. Maybe we shouldn't put so much energy and thought into vaccines. Like, slow it down, guys. Slow it down. Let's think about this a little bit more. Let's play that clip of Sean Hannity. Uh, didn't you start off telling us all that we didn't need to wear a mask? Uh, then you did the complete 180 on a mask, told everyone to wear them. Apparently today now you're telling people to wear two masks today. What's next? A hazmat suit? Now remember, Fauci said last January, one year ago, the virus, quote, is not something the citizens of the U.S. right now should be worried about. Miranda Devine writing in the New York Post, well, he recently admitted to deceitfully and intentionally shifting the goalposts on herd immunity and what I guess he thought was a noble lie. Here with Reaction, radio talk show host Larry Elder, better known as Larry. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't even feel like he's buying it entirely when he's, he's saying just sad. Yes. Yeah, his spirit is crushed with Trump leaving the White House, not getting those promotional tweets anymore. He doesn't get the, you know, it's, he just seems sad. Now his big enemy is Fauci. Fauci and AOC. That's going to be the network all day long. Uh, there's a little bit more. Let's play the second part of this. All right. I don't know when my number gets called. I, I'm actually beginning to have doubts. I've been telling my friends I'm going to get the vaccine. They, you know, Half of them agree and the other half think I'm absolutely nuts. They wouldn't take it in a million years. I don't know who to listen to. But putting all that aside, you know, the idea that people would pay or jump in front of the line and then finding out it's Hollywood elitist doing it, uh, I would never uh, jump in front of the line. What yeah. is going he on? He does not like rich white guys getting any benefit. He's very <laughs> against rich white people getting any sort of uh, front of the line access. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like Hollywood elites. Is, it's an anti-Semitic dog whistle in a lot of yeah. cases on, on that network. So. <laughs> And also, what is he talking about? He just invented that. There are, I mean, as far as I know, there aren't any stories of this. It's just, I mean, fine. You want to solve that problem? Then distribute the vaccine to everybody. Then maybe your president should have, I don't know, ordered them, not denied COVID, maybe made sure that not 4,000 Americans died. You really, you know, now you're so concerned. You're not going to take the vaccine at all because, you know, some Hollywood elites are taking the vaccine for What? And because some of his friends like, told him he's crazy too. I mean, friendly. I love that. I mean, he's like, I don't know who to, who to listen to. I'm like, maybe the medical expert. <laughs> and I mean, it's kind of the classic Republican trope of, you know, disabling government and then being pissed off that it's not working, right? You know, had, had Trump, you know, ordered vaccines and had states, you know, come up with plans for distribution, then we would have seen and not given it to CVS and Walgreens and all those big monopolies. Uh, if government had worked the right way, which, you know, what we are trying to get make happen now, they wouldn't be in this situation. And, you know, maybe Trump would have been able to take credit for a vaccine like he tried to do, 
and I'm sure Hannity tried to back him up for doing. And now that Trump doesn't get credit and uh, Biden's in there, then, you know, and then Democrats are in there and they can say, hey, look, uh, I don't even believe in the vaccine. My friends tell him crazy. How about the guy with the Leo hat? Let's see what you say. <laughs> what does that mean? Do you know I, what that meant? I don't know, but th- those are his friends. I mean, I would like, you know, get some, get some new friends. <laughs> Those are his friends who told him. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think what, what Simon said at the top was was correct about the Republicans. They're they're all over the place. There's no unified message anymore. There's no a briefing coming. And when I say briefing, I don't mean White House briefing. I mean, uh, you know, talking points that are enlisted to every single uh, every single podcaster, blogger, uh, Fox News host. Don't forget that Bill Shine, who was the head of Fox News for years in terms of 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 uh, talent just under Roger Ailes. He lives next door to Hannity. Uh, He went to go work in the communications office of the White House. All of this is dismantled now, not to mention Roger Ailes died under this administration. So there's there's a little bit of, of, uh, you know, every man for for themselves right now. So, you know, lots of They don't have their armies on Twitter and YouTube uh, and Facebook spreading their their stuff. All of them, at least. Well, yeah. Well, you know, on Parler, I'm sure they're getting tons of reaction. Or Gab. I'm sh- or Gab right, right, Gab. But here's the thing. They're all fighting with each other because some of them might think COVID exists. Some of them may be anti-maskers. Some of them may be anti va They can't get their story straight. And as long as they're all fighting with each other, not, you know, if it weren't a pandemic where they were putting us all at risk, it would be fun yeah. to watch. But unfortunately, of them, the right being super scattered. I think this is probably a conversation for another day, but it's worth in like diving into the way that the Q movement is totally splintered after the inauguration and sort of where people are going now um, and how some of them might be funneled into other right-wing extremist sort of conspiracy ideas um, and how some of them might not. So <laughs> how some of them might be now accessible to us to, to like talk to them and bring them back. But it's a little bit of a separate thing. But yeah, yeah. There's, the right is, um, <laughs> there's a lot of tracking to do. I'm, uh, I, I remember the days, I miss the days when our biggest nemesis was Carl Rove and thinking how crazy he was. <laughs> Jordan yeah, I mean, Zacharin. For, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, go I was ahead. Saying, for all the talk of, you know, the, the Bernie left being splintered now that he's not the, like the, uh, he wasn't the nominee of the president, I feel like we're much more unified uh, than the Trump brigade of lots of different ideologies and uh, right ideologies in one. It's going to be, like Simon said, a story for another time, but um, wild to watch what happens there. Is there going to be a Simon Said segment? Oh. Why did we not think of that earlier? I love that. <laughs> All right. Simon Rode, host of the Simon Said segment, and Jordan Zacharin. <laughs> he runs Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Thanks for joining us, as always, on Wednesdays. And I'm just going to give a couple of shout-outs to everyone, because I unfortunately have to run today, so we're going to do the rest of our Super Chats tomorrow, I promise. But definitely want to shout-out Docs, who's working the algorithms, and our moderators. Thank you so much, Bob Choke and The Orb, and Chuck Diesel on YouTube, and Dorian Sapiens, and The Difficult Truth on Twitch for keeping those chat rooms troll free. And as always, special shout out to our favorite guest. Sorry, guys, Professor Harvey K, because not only does he join for the show, he also joins the chat afterwards, which is real commitment. Thank you so much. We will be back tomorrow, same time, same place, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on Twitch and on YouTube. And for all of our listeners, thank you so much, patrons, for, for joining in and everybody else on our podcast. Uh, We will see you tomorrow. Solidarity.